Hello, this is Shannon Lynn, and you're listening to the Dialed In Podcast. Hello and welcome to this very special episode of the Dialed In Podcast. Today we are speaking with Trevor Miller. Trevor Miller is a social entrepreneur and also an owner of Liberty Root Therapy, a business dedicated to healing and transformation using the anti-addictive plant medicine Ibogaine and other psychedelic compounds. Trevor currently serves as board chair for the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, MAPS Canada, and is a former executive director of the Global Ibogaine Therapy Alliance. Featured in the award-winning documentary about using magic mushrooms in Iboga to heal addiction, anxiety, and depression called Dosed, he's also a founding member of the newly formed Canadian Psychedelic Association. I am super excited to speak with Trevor today on a multitude of topics, specifically how Iboga can help with depression as well as opiate addiction, which we know is a huge issue today. He's also going to talk about his own spiritual practice and how he dials in and what he dials into. So super excited to speak to a very good friend of mine and a huge advocate for decriminalization in the field of psychedelics. So without any further ado, help me welcome Mr. Trevor Miller. Trevor Miller, as you know, is a social entrepreneur and owner owner of Liberty Root Therapy Limited, business dedicated to helping healing and transforming using the anti-addictive plant medicine Ibogaine and other psychedelic compounds. Trevor, can you give us some background on how you came about this modality? Sure. Thanks for having me, Shannon. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I heard about Iboga at first when I was hanging out at the original Urban Shaman in Vancouver, which is a, a shop that sold entheogenic plant medicines here in town and hear about the the potential anti-addictive qualities of it. I also heard it was very expensive. I also heard it was a 36 hour long journey. And uh, now somewhat ironically, I, or then somewhat ironically, I said, I will never try that medicine. It just sounded very daunting. And uh, here I am now having started a business, giving it to people and it's uh, a medicine I've tried many, many times now. So that's that was the first introduction. And then the the way I started working with it was in 2001, I started looking at different ways that I might be able to help Vancouver's downtown east side, which has been correctly called the poorest postal code in Canada. And I just basically chipped away at that as a pet project for about 10 years. And then in 2009, Ibogaine came on the radar as a way to potentially help down there. And uh, a couple of years later, I had my business Liberty Root started along with my business partner at the time. And uh, yeah, we've since administered the medicine to, I think personally, I've, I've sat in on at least a couple hundred and maybe 250 sessions with people with that medicine. 
Wow, that's amazing. So Ibogaine, can you tell us a little bit about Ibogaine? Because I've heard Ibogaine, Iboga, um, it's a root, it's not from here. Yeah, can you tell us sure. a little bit about the medicine and what exactly it is? For sure. So Iboga, uh, Tabernanthi Iboga is a shrub that grows in West Africa, mostly Gabon and Cameroon. And it's been used ceremonially for centuries there. The story is that a porcupine was eating the plant and a hunter killed the porcupine and the husband and wife cooked up the porcupine and went on a crazy journey and told the chief of the village about it. And they went back to the plant he was eating. And apparently that's how they discovered the aboga, which is, it's the second layer of root bark on this shrub that has the psychoactive qualities. And they started ingesting this and the Bwidi tradition grew out of that. And that's a now centuries old spiritual tradition that, uh, uses iboga as the primary sacrament and so there's the iboga the root bark itself and then you can take that root bark and you can refine it using a mild acidic solution like vinegar and you pull out a brown powder which is called iboga total alkaloid or iboga ta and that has the ibogaine molecule within it, as well as all the other alkaloids. I've heard anywhere from maybe 10 to 50 other alkaloids that are present within the total alkaloid. And then you can take that total alkaloid and you can refine it one more time using a hydrochloric acid solution. And then you can pull out just the ibogaine itself. So those are the three primary ways of ingesting it. You've got the root bark itself, which you, would, you can take. Um, you can take away the pulp from that essentially and have the total alkaloid and then take out all those other alkaloids and be just left with the ibogaine molecule as well. And I, iboga has sustainability issues now because of the Western desire for this powerful anti-addictive plant medicine. And so that really there needs to be considered and there have been, um, there have been good efforts made now towards the preservation of this. I don't think anybody can export Iboga from Gabon right now, actually. And so that really needs to be considered. So some of the Iboga that I've worked with in the past is derived sustainably. So for one, if I am using total alkaloid, it now comes from ceremonial wood. So ceremonial wood is, um, I've seen videos of it, how it's harvested, but the, basically the, the whole village goes out and um, prays and makes offering to a large aboga tree. They dig into the, the dirt and they harvest just some of the roots. So it doesn't kill the plant. It's just taking just some of the roots. So that is one way of uh, ensuring it's sustainable. And then the ibogaine itself can be derived from another plant called Vokonga africana, which is in the iboga family. And it contains a molecule called vokongamine. And vokongamine, through a chemical process, can be turned into ibogaine. So there are large plantations of Vokonga africana um, in Ghana, I believe. 
is where my supplier gets that from. And, and yeah, they turn, turn that Volkanga Africana into Iogane, which is an awesome way to go. Wow, that definitely is interesting. And hopefully uh, sustainability can improve uh, for this medicine. Now, is this something, uh, a medicine that people would want to take at home alone? Or how is this, how, like, how is this done? Yeah, definitely not. It's the one that is potentially dangerous. Uh, the one psychedelic, well, I guess all psychedelics are potentially dangerous, but Ibogaine and iboga is the one psychedelic that could actually kill a person and has killed people. Um, and then, and that's that's not entirely fair to say either. Uh, there was a, a a study of about a dozen iboga related deaths, and they all seem to have cofactors that were a part of the death. It wasn't just necessarily ibogaine toxicity. So you should do iboga with somebody that is experienced that knows what they're doing it's advisable to get an ekg done beforehand um, to ensure your heart's in the right place it needs to be in order to receive this medicine and you know comparatively most psychedelics are very safe like magic mushrooms is the safest of all drugs as an example whereas alcohol is the most dangerous and most deadly drug on the planet so i'm a big um, advocate for people <laughs> doing psychedelics. And uh, if people want to do them on their own, I think they should be given the, the right knowledge and the right tools and understanding on how to do that on their own. But iboga is one I would never advise that people do on their own. And I'm sure people are going to do it as well. So there, there are guidelines, clinical guidelines that the Global Ibogaine Therapy Alliance has put out. It's available on their website, ibogainealliance.org. And uh, if somebody is going to, you know, play that risk card and do ibogaine or iboga on their own, they, they really need to educate themselves before they do that. Mm -hmm, absolutely. So just one, one other thing here on ibogaine, and then I have uh, quite a few other questions for you. Um, so what would be the top, what would be the reason for people to even consider uh, pursuing therapy with ibogaine? Uh, it has very strong anti-addictive properties. So in 1962, a person who used heroin by the name of Howard Lotsoff his chemist friend knew that he was open to trying just about anything and said to Howard, here, why don't you try this Ibogaine stuff? And he did. And I don't think he was expecting quite the impact that it had. He was on his way to his psychologist is my understanding and spent a lot more time on that psychologist's couch than either of them were expecting prior to arrival. And the, the amazing thing is he came out the other end and he said, wait a second, I haven't wanted heroin the whole time I've been on this, which Iboga is generally about a 36 hour long journey. So that's a long time to go out, go without an opiate if you are opiate dependent. And he, he realized he didn't want or crave heroin now or the whole time that he was on it. So that's when it's anti-addictive properties were discovered. And a lot of psychedelics have anti-addictive properties. Um, magic mushrooms and LSD have been great for alcoholism, even cigarette cessation. I've seen it work. I've seen mushrooms work for cocaine and alcohol addiction. They've got a, a great transformative kick to them. 
but Iboga is the only one that we know of that hits the opioid receptors and kind of cleanses a person so that they can be brought back into an opiate naive state. So that's really the, the crux of what Liberty Root did is administer this medicine to people who had opioid use disorder. It um, normally four to six hours is about as long as you can go with an opiate if you're opiate dependent. And the way I would work with the medicine is we would wait until we saw a bit of withdrawal symptoms, kind of miss some sweating, uh, just as an indication that the opioid receptors were craving something, they needed that next hit. And then you could administer Ibogaine, even just in a really small test dose, 100 milligrams or so. And within 45 minutes or so, those withdrawals would disappear. And then you continue to administering Ibogaine until enough has been brought on board. And if, if you do it right, those withdrawals don't come back and the cravings tend to disappear. And of course, it is a, a powerful psychedelic. So a lot of uh, psychotherapy gets done during the, the time as well. Mm. So it's, uh, it seems to have anywhere anecdotally from about a 40 to 60% success rate treating opioid use disorder. And, you know, those statistics are, there hasn't been enough science for one. Um, I'm sure certain practitioners have even a higher success rate. I've in, in the later, the later portion of when I was working with this medicine, I, I had always been kind of looking for a special sauce that makes this work for everybody. And I think the special sauce is just really working with people that, that you can see really are ready for the change and have all the support and everything else that they need in order to make that happen really well. Um, yeah, so that's, that's, that's Ibogaine. It's in the middle of an opioid crisis as we're facing around the world right now. Ibogaine is definitely a, a potential answer to everything. Hmm. Interesting. And that is Ibogaine. Um, when we look at what's happening with decriminalization of psychedelics, et cetera, um, what list would Ibogaine be on, if any? Are we currently looking at it as an illegal substance in Canada? Yeah. So when I was working with it, it was registered as a natural health product in Canada. And natural health products are things like uh, rhodiola, ginkgo biloba, things that can be sold over the counter and aren't potentially dangerous in, you know, in moderate use, whereas ibogaine is potentially dangerous. So the natural health products list wasn't the ideal place for it. It did give me a unique window to be able to work with it legally within Canada. But then in May of 2017, they put it on the prescription drug list which doesn't make it immediately available as a prescription. It still needs to go through phase one, two, and three clinical trials, which cost a whole bunch of money and take a long time. So it's, it's not, not actually legal to work with in Canada right now. I do have uh, you know plenty of doctor friends who would prescribe this medicine to my clients for me if that was an option, but it's not an option because it hasn't gone through those clinical trials. So it's kind of locked up in a, in a legal place where we can't get access to it. The one way we were looking to get access to it was through Health Canada's special access drug program. And that's set up for 
to get access to drugs that haven't completed the clinical trial process yet show promise. And it needs to be, a person needs to be in a life or death situation. Arguably, everybody in, uh, with an opiate addiction is in Canada right now is in a life or death situation because of the tainted drug supply. Mm-hmm. And they do have tried everything else. So we, we made a pretty good case around a couple of clients who had tried everything else and were in this life or death situation. And unfortunately, we didn't get approval for the application process mostly because, as I said earlier, Ibogaine simply doesn't have even enough data to get it through that program that is set up for drugs without enough data. So it's too bad. I am looking at different angles on how to how to push this through still. Um, there's been the Section 56 applications that have been granted for use of psilocybin for Um, end-of-life anxiety and now depression within Canada. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, because Ibogaine isn't actually illegal, Section 56 doesn't apply. (laughs) So, you know, it's it's tough. It's On one hand, it's great that they didn't just outlaw Ibogaine. (laughs) On the other hand, (laughs) man, I wish they had outlawed Ibogaine, then I could do a Section 56. So... But, you know, a section 56 might not even work because psilocybin does have a lot of data behind it about its safety and efficacy. And Ibogaine just simply doesn't have that that scientific data yet. At the same time, it's been used ceremonially for centuries. So if we can, if we could set up a, a world where we valued indigenous knowledge the way it should be valued, that might be a good reason to give access to people as well. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And I think we're slowly starting to come, come back to that as we realize the importance of coming back to this knowledge, um, you know, that was luckily retained uh, somewhat through the, through the ages, but um, just realizing the importance of it and the importance of ceremony as well. So thank you so much. That's so interesting. Um, definitely something to look into and hopefully in the future trials can be done and more research can be done on the scientific end to, you know, to help bring it forward to, to more people. I want to talk a little bit about a documentary that you were featured in uh, called Dosed. It's an award-winning documentary about using magic mushrooms as well as iboga to heal addiction, anxiety, and depression. Can you tell us a little bit about Dosed? Yeah, sure. That was a really fun process, uh, if not harrowing. <laughs> I had a lot of points during it, as you can see in the movie, if you check it out. Um, the the movie makers, Nick and Tyler, they started reaching out to the Ibogaine providers that were in Vancouver a couple of years ago now. And I believe I did get a voicemail from them. I didn't answer it. But then I heard from my buddy, Mark Howard, who owns a company called Deboga Soul. And he told me that he was working with these documentary guys. And I said, oh, I'll plug myself in and see if I might consult with them a little bit anyway. And Dost is the story of a woman named Adrienne. And she had uh, poly substance use disorder, but primarily the one that she wanted to overcome the stickiest of them all was the heroin addiction. And 
she she reached out to her friend Tyler and mentioned that she was suicidal. She was just at her wit's end. And Tyler had just heard that uh, magic mushrooms might be good for treating addiction and depression. And he was very psychedelic naive himself, but he said, you know, do you want to try this? And do you, maybe we should shoot some video about it and maybe it turns into a movie or something. And that's basically what they did is a couple of friends helped uh, another friend uh, do her first mushroom journey. And the mushroom journey is featured in the movie and it, it really lifted her suicidality. She realized she wanted to live after that first mushroom experience. Unfortunately, mushrooms, as we've discussed, don't have an effect on the opioid use disorder because it doesn't hit those opioid receptors, or at least it doesn't clean them up. And after some looking at different ways that they might be able to help her, they discovered Iboga and Ibogaine, and then they reached out to Mark Howard, Mark Howard accepted, and Adrienne did, uh, it took her, I believe, three Iboga journeys in order to kick the opioid use disorder, and she used some, some further magic mushrooms as well, and uh, overcame a large bit of her depression and anxiety, and, you know, huge spoiler alert here, but she is now probably two and a half years sober and she's a very dear friend and it's been a great experience being a part of this movie it was we were all very nervous about it <laughs> through the process and we were all very nervous because we didn't know i i think i knew it was going to be successful but the the movie makers they had no idea whether or not this was going to be successful right so they they just followed their friend around as they tried to help her overcome her addiction using these, these plant medicines. And after, when I saw the first cut of the movie, I took a big sigh of relief because I saw what a great job they did. And then it was featured pre-COVID in a bunch of, uh, we did a, a, grig, a big launch here in Vancouver at the Vogue Theater. We had 1,200 people there. Paul Stamets and Dennis McKenna were on stage afterwards. We had an awesome panel of all the cast and them. And then, yeah, a bunch of other film festivals. And we toured it around a bit and did some panels afterwards. And it was a really cool thing to be a part of, especially with how inspiring it is there are a lot of twists and turns you don't see coming in the movie because it's real life and um, it's, it's, it's awesome. I'm, I'm thrilled to have been a part of that. And it's such a great story. And I've met um, Adrienne and she is such an amazing, beautiful young woman. And, mm -hmm. uh, and, and the story is just so amazing. And uh, I'll see if I can put a link to it. I think it's on um, available on Vimeo. I'll put a link to it in the Yeah, if you go to well. dosedmovie.com, you can link to Vimeo from there. Wonderful. And they're, they're doing things now to hopefully get it up on iTunes pretty soon. And then fingers crossed, we get this thing on Netflix. That would be really good for the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Just to just see what these medicines can do. And that kind of segues into my next question about the stigma out there about psychedelics in general. So perhaps you can talk a little bit about, you know, 
why are why are these plants illegal? <laughs> it sounds kind of funny, right? Um, plants being illegal. Um, you know, the condition of the war on drugs and and why maybe decriminalization is so important. So maybe just tell us a little bit about why there's such a stigma out there and people think these are so bad. Mm-hmm. Well, the war on drugs was a very successful propaganda campaign. It's very much made a drug a drug um, and a drug is a bad thing and if you use drugs you are a bad person you're morally not as good as the rest of the people who don't use drugs and in the the 1960s there was a, a big backlash against psychedelic drugs in particular mostly LSD was the most popular and there was a couple of reasons for the lockdown on these substances. Number one, the people who were using them basically became or or were the the anti-war movement. The war in Vietnam was something that was underway, and people who took LSD didn't want to go shoot strangers in their own country on the other side of the world. So The other component of that is there's a racist component to the war on drugs. And, um, you know, if if people use marijuana, if people use any kind of substance, and if there's a certain subset of the population that you would like to take away their power, then using the war on drugs is a really good tool for, it's a systemic tool for racism. So um, a lot a lot of stigma has come on top of these substances. People like I didn't know growing up that LSD had a potential therapeutic value. I was never aware of that. I I did experience LSD fairly young in my life. And I do remember saying to my friends, wow, this is what the, this is what the adults have forgotten that has made the world so screwed up. So the therapeutic benefit of psychedelics comes through whether or not you know there's a a therapeutic potential in a lot of cases. And yeah, so so they were outlawed and and not only were they outlawed, they were outlawed and propagandized against. So that's some really good brainwashing and it's hard to reverse brainwashing like that. And I, I have compassion. I understand where it comes from. I don't, I don't blame people or, or have harsh feelings against people who, who believe such things. It's just the way the mind works. If you're told something enough times, you're going to believe it. And thankfully, that we're in the middle of what's being called the psychedelic renaissance, which is people are realizing the therapeutic benefit of these substances. And there was plenty of research done back in the late 50s, early 60s, mid 60s around the therapeutic benefit of these substances. And from there, um, they were outlawed, no research was done. And in the last 10, 15 years, we started again getting a lot of research. And the research is very promising for curing a lot of the things that the world is facing right now and in dire need of, of needing to fix, like our mental health crisis. And people are waking up to the safety and efficacy of these substances. So now... We've got to 
maybe truly wash people's brains and get rid of the, the negative propaganda that's been put in. And um, we're, we're in the middle of doing that. We've, uh, you know, I've, I've, I've been a part of starting the Canadian Psychedelic Association and we've been a part of our a decriminalized nature campaign. And, you know, we are for the decriminalization of all drugs because prohibition doesn't work on any level. But um, we're the kind of the, the sharp end of the wedge that we're focused on is the plant medicine specifically. So I, I think there's an incredible arrogance in mankind outlawing something that grows out of the ground. So that's what the decriminalized nature campaign is really about is let's at least make the plants legal. The mushrooms are incredibly safe. The, um, the cacti are incredibly safe. The ayahuasca is maybe not quite as safe, but can be used safely. So let's, let's just make the, let's just set the plants free is, is the campaign that we're a part of right now. And that's definitely an absolutely beautiful campaign because I personally know, you know, working with thousands of people, um, holistically, I know people who wouldn't be alive today, wouldn't be walking without cannabis, you know, they wouldn't be able to move, uh, you know, arthritis, cancer. There's so many things, you know, that, uh, that these plants are so great for, um, you know, psilocybin, just ayahuasca, (laughs) you can go on and on and on. Right. And, uh, you know, you think they're plants, right? How could, how could you make a plant illegal? It's just so interesting. Um, and of course there's so much science coming out on these now, which is absolutely wonderful. And actually even in Canada, um, I'm sure you know that there are courses now being implemented into certain universities, um, out East, I believe, uh, university, I think it's in Ottawa, uh, that it, they're slowly starting to even be part of the curriculum, which is amazing. So, uh, there's definitely some movement being made in the Renaissance and, you know, these, these things are being studied, uh, more on the, on the medical side and the science side, but, you know, like you said, they've been used for thousands of years in ceremony for healing. And uh, it's ridiculous in the first place that they're illegal, um, you know, that they've been made that way. But uh, it's nice to see that there's a lot of research being done on them uh, to bring them, you know, forward to for global, global use. Um, now in there, you mentioned the Canadian Psychedelic Association, the CPA, and I understand you're a founding member of the CPA. Did you want to talk a little bit about that and who they are, what they do? Sure. The CPA grew out of um, a couple of avenues. One of the primary ones was there was a Group gathering a group of people who came together at the Sentinel Retreat Center in Caslow, BC, uh, last June, so 2019. And it was 32 people who they had all been in the plant medicine community for at least five years or more. So, underground therapists or above ground therapists, like somebody like me who is who's actually operating above ground for a little while. But we saw that when 
cannabis was legalized, there was a certain corporatization of the entire space that happened that left a lot of people out of the, the new paradigm. A lot of the people who, who kind of founded the movement and championed the movement early on were pushed out as big pocketed corporations um, were taking over. And we came together to kind of humbly do what we could to make sure that doesn't happen with psychedelics. So that was one of the impetus. And then there was a group of people who came together around uh, the, the drug ketamine, which is actually a legal drug. It's a synthetic psychedelic, the only truly synthetic psychedelic, but has great therapeutic potential as well. And it's a prescription that's used every day in hospitals all across Canada and North America. But there is an off-label way of working with this medicine, which uh, gives the psychedelic effect or leans upon the psychedelic effect in conjunction with psychotherapy. And it's very good for treating things like depression. But uh, it's not, it's not looked upon favorably by the College of Physicians here in British Columbia or some of the colleges across Canada. So that group came together to see what it could do to champion ketamine. And these two groups merged to say, all right, how, how can we represent all the medicines in a really good way? And essentially the CPA grew out of that. So that was uh, December 31st, 2019. We finally incorporated the uh, CPA. And really for 2020, the first couple of months of 2020 was really just doing what we could to make sure that the, the CPA had a heartbeat. And there's a wonderful board of directors that have dedicated many, many hours to making the CPA work. And it is alive and well now. And really we want to be the, almost the, a few metaphors have been used. One is we want to be a beacon where, where people can see to come to talk about issues related to psychedelics. And another metaphor is we'd like to be an umbrella or tent where everybody who is interested in these substances and the interesting nuances that come from working with these substances can all come together to, to talk it out. Um, we've done some webinar series with some great guests. We've uh, pushed forward the decriminalized nature petition that, uh, that there's, I'll, I'll give uh, proper credit to Chris Bennett and Jovi and Francie are two people who came up with this petition that uh, they then asked me to quarterback and we got that petition to the House of Commons with just about 15,000 signatures. Uh, response has now come back from the government. We weren't expecting them to just say, great, yeah, we're going to decriminalize everything. But the response wasn't too bad either. It really pointed out that there are avenues for people to get access to these substances like the Section 56 exemption that has been offered. So. Um, you know, we're, we're very focused on the diversity and inclusion piece within uh, the psychedelic space now as well. I think the psychedelic community deserves some credit in a large degree because I think maybe more than any other community, 
I know of, these issues of diversity, inclusion, and cultural appropriation are a topic of conversation and are something that is, it's very important that people are, are looking at. So I think um, my attitude around all of that is let's just keep working on it. And, and we don't have to work on it in a, in a vitriolic way, thinking that people don't want these issues to be worked out. I think everybody I know in these, these communities want these issues to be worked out and are very dedicated to being a part of the solution. So yes, there's problems in the world. I also think this community holds the key to solutions and the, the CPA really just wants to be uh, an organization that helps bring about those solutions. That's super great to hear, Trevor. Now, how can people get involved with the CPA? Is there a membership? Um, can yeah. they donate? Um, yeah, they can go to psychedelicassociation.net and you can become a friend of the CPA, which is almost a, a base level membership that we started because people did want to help out. It's only 50 or $100 to become a friend of the CPA. And we are working towards having a more robust membership offering early in the new year. But you can just go to the website and leave us your email address to stay in the loop on everything we're up to. There's a great webinar, great series of webinars coming out still in, uh, at the end of the month, but we or the end of this year. And all of our webinars are available on our Facebook page, all the ones that we've already have done. Wonderful. And I know you've had some great luminaries that are leading the way and the psychedelic renaissance on your webinar. So definitely great to check out if people are interested in finding out more about that. Now, question here, why are these medicines needed now on our planet more than ever? Um, I think because they actually work to fix probably the the only problem that we have on earth is the state of consciousness of the earthlings <laughs> the human earthlings that live upon it um, there is a great sense of division on earth right now there is a great sense of intolerance that seems to be reflected right now and i find that these medicines are very unifying they 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 potentiate mystical experiences. A mystical experience often comes with a sense of unity where you realize you are one with everyone you have ever met in a very literal way. You are one with the entire planet. The, the other uh, movement that was born part, at least partly, if not to a large degree out of psychedelics was the, the environmental movement was largely you know, ushered in by the psychedelic experience, people having unitive experiences, realizing we need to take care of the planet. We need to take care of each other. We need to stop judging each other so harshly. You know, if you hate somebody, if you are angry at somebody, it, it you can only know those things because of you holding hate and anger within you. And absolutely. Yeah, you know, it's it's people people are quick to call people uh, spiritual bypassers these days, and it's 
yes, there is something, there is a legitimate thing called spiritual bypassing where you're, you're just, you're deking the obvious, but to me, it's not spiritual bypassing to say we are all one thing. And you really, even, even your, your, the, the person you think is oppressing you more than anybody else is one with you. And we need to recognize that because that's, that's the truth of it all. And it's not bypassing. It's, it's the essence of spirituality is to realize <laughs> that we're all one with each other. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean you allow somebody to, to keep somebody down or oppress somebody. You do do what you can to fix injustices, but you do it with love in your heart. A Course in Miracles, one of my favorite spiritual texts, it has uh, a line I'll paraphrase called, uh, it says, there are only two emotions, love and a call for love, which Mm. shows up as fear, anger, hate, murder. Either way, love is the only appropriate response. Mm -hmm. And as we're fixing injustices, we need to do it with love in our hearts or else we are not fixing any injustices. We are Mm -hmm. making things worse. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's all so, so wonderful. And, uh, you know, talking about oneness and I was just on a webinar the other day with Zoe Helena and she, she said, you know, the same thing, we're all one, you know, even if it's uh, when we go to those higher states of consciousness, we realize that, but if you want to think about it in a really, you know, down to earth way, it's like, we come from the earth, we go back to the earth. And this has been cycling for how many, like hundreds of thousands of millions of years. It's like, there's no way we can't physically be a part of each other mm-hmm. because we're all, you know, we all come from this dirt on this planet that we're floating around in space on. And, uh, and then, you know, look at it on the, the esoteric levels or the levels of other dimensions. It's like, which are the levels we get to in these altered states of consciousness or these higher states of consciousness when we're working with psychedelics you realize that you know if you go past the body you go past the mind we're all part of this source this energy and it's all the same thing and we all come from it and we all go back to it and and uh and and part of our journey here is to realize that uh right and it's and it's yeah just part of the journey so so you take the medicine you have these amazing experiences you have these realizations you come back to earth now what you can take yeah then hopefully you can take those lessons and integrate them into your daily life and make yourself a perhaps a a higher functioning and perhaps better human being i i often say that these medicines it's not like they add anything to you it's just that as we live, we're seeing life through a filter and that filter can get dirty like your windshield on your car. And it gets so dirty that you can't tell how beautiful it is outside anymore. And a good psychedelic psychotherapy session cleans that glass from the inside out. And it's not like it adds anything to you. It just takes away all the crap. And once all the crap's been removed, you're like, oh, actually life's awesome. I'm happy to be here again. Let's get some things done to make this a better place. Let's another thing I've experienced in my 
almost decade of working with these substances is almost every person to the person wants to help other people have the experience once they've had it. It's like, holy shit, mm -hmm. I got to get my mom <laughs> to do this. I got to get my dad to do this. I got to get, <laughs> I got to get my friends to do this. This, this is awesome. I feel amazing. People need to know how great life how, could be. So you come back, there's work to do. Is there always going to be work to do or can you just take them and be magically healed? You know, like if you think Definitely about the not. windshield <laughs> and, and um, analogy, you know, we, we're always going to keep driving, right? We're always going to mm -hmm. keep getting stuff on the windshield. Mm -hmm. um, so that work either could be going back to the medicine again, or, you know, using these tools that maybe were given as messages and the journeys of, you know, how to do our work and keep, keep the channel clean. If mm -hmm. channel might not be the right word, but, you know, just keeping the windshield clean. I think the, the psychedelic experience on its own does have the potential to offer tremendous transformation. But if you want to make sure that the psychedelic experience offers tremendous transformation, you do it in conjunction with a spiritual or personal development practice. Um, Claudio Naranjo, an early psychedelic practitioner, he wrote in a book, The Healing Journey, again, I'll paraphrase, but something along the lines of the lower, there's one ladder, the lower stages of those ladders looks like personal development, looks like psychology, looks like, um, now I'm really paraphrasing, but it looks like things like Tony Robbins and reading books like Think and Grow Rich and kind of the abundant, abundant strategies and law of attraction strategies. And then further up that ladder, you know, if you're doing it right, you might find religion, but further up that ladder, there's meditation, there's deep, deep spiritual practice and reverence. It's one ladder, but that's the ladder that psychedelics are going to help you navigate. And uh, like I have, I've had a daily meditation practice for the last five years. I've been a spiritual seeker for 25 years or more in a conscious way. Um, it is, it is psychedelics, which have given me the experience, experiential reality I was seeking in a lot of those spiritual practices. And you get, you get to lift the veil for a moment and you're like, okay, I'm on the right track. This is awesome. This, uh, this is what I've been aiming for. Cool. Mm -hmm. I'm going to stay on this path. I'm going to double down on this path. I'm not necessarily going to take psychedelics monthly or definitely not daily. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to make myself, uh, make my spiritual practice richer. I'm going to dive into my meditation way more because ultimately what we're looking for is those unitive peak experiences without the use of the exogenous external substances that you're bringing into the system. We want to, we want to turn our system into a, a system that releases the bliss molecule all the time that doesn't rely on those external substances. And the psychedelic experience can give you that look over the fence where you're like, oh yeah, awesome. This is great. This is where I want to go. And then it's the daily personal development and spiritual practices that will then lead you towards that hopping over that fence on a permanent basis, in my opinion.
I love that analogy. Um, and speaking of spiritual practices, you had mentioned that you have your own daily practice and you've had it for about five years. Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, what this practice is, what it involves and what you do, what keeps you grounded? And, you know, I guess this would be your part of doing your work, right? So can you talk mm -hmm. a little bit about that? Yeah, as I said, I've been on a, a consciously evolving spiritual path for many years. The early years of that, it was all intellectual. I started, uh, at first I was atheist. Then I realized maybe I threw the baby out with the bathwater on the religion thing. Then I started looking at every religion I could get my hands on to see what's similar between them all, not different, because I knew the answer was going to lie in the similarities. And I gained a very good... Uh, intellectual understanding of why spirituality is a valid thing. And my life became tremendously better through exposure to materials like that. A Course in Miracles, I already mentioned. If you're an intellectual who is uh, looking for food for thought on a spiritual level, A Course in Miracles can't be beat. It is a masterpiece. And I, but up until about five years ago, I didn't have a daily meditation practice. And it was through the, I, I, I stumbled upon the spiritual teacher Sadhguru. And he is an Indian mystic who is incredible, very charismatic. He just kind of hits all the notes for me. I feel as though my first 20 years of spiritual seeking was, uh, was the development of a very good spiritual bullshit detector. And I realized once I saw Sadhguru that he was the real deal. And in the five years I've been watching his teachings, I've uh, he's never steered me wrong. And I've never kind of had any red flags going up that he was full of it in any way. So I learned five years ago, the 21 minute meditation that he teaches through his inner engineering, which is called a Shambhavi meditation. And it's just a, a 21 minute meditation that is easy to do every day, enjoyable to do every day. And I can see after I can see that I was paying spirituality lip service until I actually had a daily practice. It's once I had that daily practice that a foundation started to grow where I just had a peaceful foundation that was there always that I could always turn to. Uh, I, I couldn't quite buy the bullshit in the same way that the ego was trying to throw at me once I had this daily practice. I've also learned some other yoga from him and uh, have that incorporated into my life as well. I'm in very good shape compared to before I met him. And, uh, you know, I've, I wouldn't say correlation equals causation, but I've also largely quit drinking since my exposure to his work. Um, my diet is much better. I eat far less meat. I I used to get gout, which is an acidic system and gout has disappeared from my life. So, um, yeah, I, I can, I can recommend Sadhguru with full, you know, I, 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 I was relieved in, in meeting Sadhguru. I'm like, oh, cool. I don't have to become a spiritual teacher, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> a, an act, you know, I guess we're all spiritual teachers if we're living our life right. But you know, he's, he's the guy I'm like, you know, 
you want to learn how to meditate, go to that guy. You know, he's got a great app, Kriya, Kriya Yoga app that has a 12 minute meditation on it. I think for those people that just want to start right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A lot of free resources he has on that too. And chit Shakti meditations. And wasn't it kind of a synchronicity that you kind of fell into alignment with him? Yeah, it was. Well, through this, this uh, spiritual development that I was going through, I really didn't like the idea of a guru at all. I didn't like the word guru. I didn't like the concept of bowing down to another human being the way devotees seem to, to their gurus. Uh, I never wanted to be the kind of person who said that I had a guru, (laughs) but I read a book called Autobiography of a Yogi, which I just um, I just started listening to it again last night. The audiobook is awesome. It's by Ben Kingsley, Oscar winning Ben Kingsley is the narrator and the author is Yogananda and it is Paramahansa Yogananda. And he was a young man in, in India in the early 1900s. He was fourth born to his family. He knew from the get-go that he was a spiritual person. His mother knew as well and they nurtured that in him. And when he was 14 years old, he went out to try and find his guru. He knew his guru was out there. He'd had dreams of him and searched all of India and ran into a whole bunch of mystical people who could perform amazing feats, but he knew none of them was his guru until one day across a crowded marketplace, he sees his guru, his guru sees him. They both instantly recognize each other. They're They jump for joy. They run to each other and hug like long lost brothers. And the guru says, you're going to come to my uh, ashram in a year. And that's the start of his, his deep spiritual practice. So I read that and I'm like, all right, I'd be open to that. (laughs) (laughs) I'd be open to a guru. If all of a sudden I knew on every level of my being that Mm -hmm. this was my guy or girl. Mm -hmm. And for the next five years or so, that's what I did is I just did this inner check. Whenever I saw some kind of a spiritual teacher, I would just check in with myself. I'm like, is this my guy? Is this my girl? Whether it was a book or saw somebody on TV or something, I just, I would do a little inner check and nothing until one day uh, a friend of mine that I actually, that actually uh, reintroduced me to the plant medicine community here in Canada. He's a, a French guy from France and he had moved back to France and he shared a video one day and it was a video of Sadhguru talking about fear. And I just saw this video come through on my Facebook feed. I pressed play and within uh, three to 10 seconds, I knew on every level of my being, I'm like, holy shit, this is my guy. Yeah, I can't believe this. Wow. Like just, I instantaneously knew Uh, there. It was, it hit me like a ton of bricks and I dove in. He has so many great hours of, of talks on, on YouTube. I took his inner engineering course as quick as I could. I drove down to San Francisco to get initiated into the meditation by him, along with 2,000 other people. Um, and, and yeah, I, don't, I honestly don't feel like I'm a seeker anymore. 
I feel like I have found what I need spiritually. I just follow what that man says. And <laughs> I don't, I, you know, as he would tell you, I don't, I don't put him on a pedestal. I know he's a human being. He's a, he's a wonderfully accomplished human being. And, um, you know, I, I, I will never bow down at its, his feet. And I, I don't know about that. Even if I had the opportunity, <laughs> it felt appropriate, <laughs> I might give a little bow, but um, I did actually, I went to India a f- couple years ago to, to the Mahashivratri, which is the, in the yogic calendar, it's the biggest night. It's the darkest night of the year, lunar wise. And it's the night to honor Shiva. And I went to this party that he threw with half a million people. He's, he's bigger than the Beatles over there. So it was this amazing all night party with half a million people at it. And I was there the week after as well. And I had an opportunity to, to sit at his feet. It was very unique. I had been meditating at a, a newly consecrated linga that was in front of this 112 foot statue of the first yogi. And I'd been in this perfect meditation. It was the most, it felt a very supported meditation. It was silent. I must've been just, I was completely still for 45 minutes straight on every level of my being. I was just supported by that linga. And as I'm popping out of the meditation, the person who was minding that area, he came over to me and said, Hey, Sadhguru's over there. Like what? Yeah, he's over there. He's going to do an interview. So I walked over and sure enough, there's a platform that's set up with two chairs on it. And there's a, a little set of bleachers with a video camera on it. And Sadhguru is sitting there and he's about to do a couple TV interviews. And I went to sit on the bleachers. Nobody else had really realized what was going on there. There was no gathering of people. And I went to sit on the bleachers and the, the, um, the person who was minding Sadhguru said, oh no, go sit over there and kind of shooed me away. But then the guy who had been watching me meditate whispered something in the ear of this woman and she said, oh, okay. And then they allowed me to sit. I was the one guy sitting on this set of bleachers and he, Sadhguru was right there and he was angled towards me and I was basically his audience. Wow. He was, he was doing the interview with the, he did two half an hour long interviews, but I'm sitting there and I'm just beaming. I'm like trying mm-hmm. to empty myself and just allow his vibe. But he's, you know, he's a funny guy. He's telling jokes and I'm his mm-hmm. audience. He's seeing if I'm laughing, you know, so he's <laughs> looking over at me all the time. And then a really amazing moment at the end where everybody was wrapped up. They were, they wanted to take some still shots of them up on that platform. So I needed to get out of the way and I'm watching what's happening up on the platform. I I'm away from the bleacher and I see Sadhguru. He notices I'm not there anymore. He looks around for me, finds me and then gives me a big bow. Wow. And it was just epic. It was just the icing on the cake from my trip to India. So, um, yeah, I never thought I would talk about a human being this way, but I, I think the world is in need of teachers with integrity. And this man has more integrity than any other human being I've ever encountered. Kind of a little, well, maybe a big synchronicity. Interestingly, um, I found Sadhguru as well a few years ago and made a trip to Vancouver. 
and uh, when Sadhguru was in Vancouver. And uh, I was like, okay, I have to sit in the front row. I have to be right in front of him and went to his talk and he did his meditation and and I left, flew back to Manitoba where I had a wellness center and yoga studio at the time. A year later, I came to the Spirit Plant Medicine Conference and there was a lunch with Rick Doblin, which I attended, where I met you. I remember talking to you at the lunch and then we stayed in touch at the Spirit Plant Medicine Conference and synchronistically, we were both at Sadhguru's talk, just seats down from each yeah. other. I think you were sitting with Gabor um, and I was like three or four seats um, down from you. And we were both at the same um, talk that Sadhguru is doing. And it's like, he just has this way of, of connecting everything and everyone and uh definitely a guru that i follow and shambhavi wouldn't be, there wouldn't be life without shambhavi you know the the meditation and the way he describes it is just you know kind of like cleaning the windshield the deeper you go into the practices it's like psychedelics without the psychedelics you know and being able to jump over the wall and see the other side and clear maya and slowly build up that practice so that you you know you don't even you're just constantly like that. That is just life. So, so happy to hear that, uh, that you found that next question I have for you here is how have you personally benefited from practicing these therapies? And can you maybe give us a few examples of what has successfully worked for you? For sure. Um, I mentioned that I stopped drinking the, uh, I said the correlation was I was doing a lot of Sadhguru's meditation. I'd say the more likely causation was an iboga journey. I had an iboga journey where um, where all the stuff came up around drinking, and you know my my drinking in the eyes of the world perhaps would not have been considered problematic. I uh, I had in a previous incarnation I was a cruise director on a cruise ship. It's it's a cruise director's job to drink with passengers and be social. And when you're working on cruise ships, nobody's an alcoholic because everybody's an alcoholic. So there was just a steady stream of alcohol alcohol into my system ever since I was probably 15 years old, every weekend at least, kind of thing. And I knew something like my my spiritual radar didn't like that very much for sure but it was nothing was ever enough to just make me stop it seemed like a massive leap to actually just stop drinking and i then one day i did an iboga journey with mark howard from iboga soul the first time i ever did a journey with my buddy and um he works in a way that is a westernized uh, weedy context, the African context. And he took me on a soul journey and it's almost like a, a visualization exercise as you're on this powerful medicine, but he brought me to a tree and the tree, he, he said, ask that tree or give that tree a hug. So I gave the tree a hug and it was a flowering cherry tree that was at the, one of my Liberty root properties in white rock. And he said, ask that tree what the purpose of life is. And the tree said, to flower. And I thought, that's a great answer. And we both chuckled at that. And then 
he said, ask, ask the tree. And it was something around negative tendencies, how to get rid of negative things in your life. And the tree said, stop watering your weeds. And again, great advice. And that really spoke to me about drinking is maybe I wasn't hung over after that bottle of wine, but it sure did water my depression a little bit, watered my procrastination a bit, watered my anxiety around life a little bit. So that happened. And then in that same journey, I had an encounter with my deceased grandfather who told me I, I should stop drinking for my lineage. So I woke up the next day or got up the next day. It's not like I spoke or not like I slept, but I spoke to Mark after that and said, yeah, all this stuff came up around drinking. And he said, well, you know, because of the nature of the business we're in, there's an argument to be made that we might need to hold ourselves to a higher standard around things like drugs and alcohol. And I said, yeah, you're right maybe I'll try and stop drinking. So I was driving home the next day. I felt like going for a beer at the pub I always went to and thankfully called Mark Howard and said, well, you don't have to stop forever. Maybe, but it, maybe at least stop for tomorrow or today. And uh, I said, yeah, you're right. And I went home, I went to bed, I woke up and I didn't have the desire for a drink for another three years. I didn't drink. Um, I did eventually allow a bit of alcohol back into my life. I now have it very infrequently for special occasions. I, I really love wine. I enjoy a glass of wine. In fact, the first drink I ever had after that was with you, Shannon. We, oh, were, no. at an, <laughs> we were at an event in uh, Saskatchewan and it's that was a very special occasion. We got invited to a restaurant that had closed down already yeah. and we were given... Uh, the chef said, oh, well, I wouldn't normally do this, but as long as you eat whatever I feed you, come on in. So he brought over a bottle of wine and said, here, you got to try this. And I'm like, I haven't drank in three years, but this is the special occasion I was waiting for. Mm -hmm. And I found that my relationship to alcohol has completely changed. It just does not have the hooks in me in a way that it used to. So mm -hmm. That was super synchronistic too. Like we were just walking yeah. by the restaurant. <laughs> yeah, late at night. It was wild. Yeah. The owner sat and chatted with us for, I don't know, it was hours. Yeah, it was yeah, an amazing meal. But, yeah. but I, I reikied the wine. I gave it reiki energy. You did. So. <laughs> <laughs> so it was good, but definitely an honor. And uh, it was amazing to be able to have that experience with you for sure. Mm. Um, some people even say when it comes to alcohol that, um, you know, if you get more on the esoteric level, that it's like actually a spirit attachment that takes place into, um, parts in our aura that might need healing. So it's, mm -hmm. it's interesting and it's interesting how these medicines can, you know, obviously scientists close your ears, <laughs> yeah. but <laughs> it's interesting how, um, some of these medicines have the energy to remove, uh, these attachments and then heal those places, um, where those attachments were mm -hmm. so that nothing can come and attach to that aura. And then every time you do it, it's like, it builds the aura greater and greater. Mm -hmm. I know we're getting a little bit more into the, the energy realm here. So yeah, it's like I said, it, it, it cleans the glass from the inside out. It, mm -hmm. it's takes that shit away. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So what made you ultimately decide that you wanted to make a career helping of helping people by offering these therapies? It was very selfish in a, in a, 
altruistic way. And it, in my early 20s, I started reading books like crazy to try and make my life better. I stumbled upon the, the personal development type stuff and things like Think and Grow Rich. And I, I realized I'd been given the keys to the kingdom on how to make money as an example, but I didn't want to, I wanted to use that power wisely. And at, at a certain point through all this reading, I said to myself, well, why am I reading these books? And the answer came back, well, I want to be happy. Okay, so let's cut to the chase then. What do all these books say about being happy? And it seemed to me, after, again, thinking about it for a while, that the happiest people, or at least the people that I most wanted to emulate, seemed to be helping a heck of a lot more people than I was at the time. And I thought about that, and I'm like, yeah, you know, like, it would really feel good to help somebody radically transform and make their life better. If they were suffering and I could help release that burden a little bit. And I, I find it ironic. It's like, I feel like selfishness, if you don't take it far enough is bad for the world. It turns cancerous. But I think if you take selfishness to the furthest degree, I think it would probably make every human being feel really good to help somebody transform. So I, I think that there's a really good um, kind of governor upon that as well. There's, there's this, there's the potential to be a do-gooder that does more harm than good. And I think those people are doing good, but they aren't necessarily feeling truly good doing it. It's more of this righteousness that they feel from having done good, which doesn't feel all that great and it tires you out eventually. But I think if you truly do good and you see and you see the impacts of the good that you're doing, then that's a very healthy way to feel. And I think it's it's ironic that selfishness, if you take it to the furthest degree, which turns into wanting to help others, it's selfishness flips on itself and turns into altruism. So that, you know, I came up with that hypothesis 20 years ago that helping other people might make me feel good. And I can say definitely I was correct on that hypothesis. There's, there's nothing as good as getting the text that I got at Christmas time talking about how, how wonderful a person's life is because they met me and mm -hmm. I helped them get off, get off the dope they've been stuck on for 20 years as an example. Mm, that's so special changing lives and and you know even the smallest things that you can do make huge differences in some people's lives and that's just so special and it has a ripple effect right um you know and that person hopefully will go on to help other people through through their healing and through their uh, coming back to themselves yeah the ripple effects everything like it's mm -hmm. yeah those texts i get don't only come from my clients but my clients parents and with with tales of how well the whole family is doing now and mm -hmm. and the babies and the kids and how great it is to have their dad back kind of thing yeah yeah so important and so special so trevor i am wondering how do you dial in and what does dialing in mean to you? Or I guess you could say, what are you dialing into? Um, I think 
I think what dialing in means to me is coming back to spiritual truth, coming back to a sense of peace within me, a, a sense of contentment, a sense of knowing that I'm on the right path, uh, a sense of um, bolstering the the right path, like not just being com not being complacent about where I'm at, but continuing to better myself. And then the way I would do that would be the meditation practice we've already been talking about, um, my yoga, uh, good friends, good community. And I still am a, an avid reader. I do most of it these days through Audible and audiobooks. And, um, you know, I love, I've, I've built the muscle to be able to do that at high speed. You can, you can double or triple the speed of the book and get it into you quick. And it's like uh, Neo in the Matrix when he all of a sudden knows Kung Fu. I love learning things. So uh, the, the Audible app has been a, a great blessing in my life. And most of the, the books that I listen to are around, uh, are, are around spiritual teaching. So I'm, I'm just kind of always trying to make more clear that inner landscape and just clearing out all that crap and, and doing all the integration work. And, and, and I, I do, I do do psychedelic plant medicines every now and then definitely not, not as frequently as I once did. And I have to say that there was a, a large stretch during my twenties and thirties where I didn't do any psychedelics. It really came back on my radar probably when I was around 35. So it's, um, it's, you know, dialing into me is, is tapping into that source. What can we do to tap into that source energy? And that source energy is an energy that uh, gives you a sense of peace, gives you a sense of belonging, gives you a sense of being at home. And I like to recognize my emotions and feelings as a guidance system. And if I'm feeling off in some way, what can I do within the next minute to make myself feel a little bit better? Because I know that is how I am reorient reorienting myself in a, a good direction to stay dialed into that source. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And using your, your intuition on that um, as well. Um, speaking of that, um, you, you work with a lot of people in, uh, the community and in the industry, you know, depression, PTSD, anxiety, um, and stress is a huge factor as well. What is your go-to meditation or mantra or practice that works instantly, uh, or almost instantly to relieve stress and bring a sense of calm and quiet back to your being? I found myself recently really just saying the phrase, everything is going to be all right. And trying to move into a, a feeling that everything is going to be all right. There's, there is, uh, some have said, or someone once said, and I've found it to be true that all things are there to teach us faith. I think that is the only thing we are here to learn on earth is faith and, and not, not faith in some bearded man in the sky, faith in faith as an operating principle, faith as the opposite to fear. Fear is just the expectation of a bad thing to come. It's an expectation. Faith 
life is just an expectation as well, but it's of a good thing to come. And these both tend to become self-fulfilling prophecies and become feedback loops. So if you are perpetually fearful, you are going to continue to manifest perpetual fear. But if you can just have faith, have faith that things are going to work out and then start looking for that solution, that that way out that's going to be good for everybody, you tend to find it. So everything is going to be all right. And that just comes with faith and letting my energetic system just go down a notch and, and not be so ramped up and be at peace a little bit more. I, I think that's a great mantra. Everything is going to be all right. There's a building in the downtown east side that has a big electric sign that says that. Mm, that's perfect. Everything is going to be all right. You could even sing it if you wanted to, right? Totally. Yeah. <laughs> Everything's going to be all right. Everything's going to be all right now. <laughs> so how can people get in touch with you, Trevor? Um, I think through email is a great way. I'm at T Miller, T M I L L A R at psychedelic association.net. Perfect. We'll put your contact information on the, um, on the podcast notes as well. Um, so do you have any final words to leave our listeners with today? I think I, I said the words that I would normally leave as final words, which is do what you can to live in faith. Do what you can to, to, Expect that this world is going to figure itself out and that you're going to be a part of that solution. That's what we need right now is solution-oriented people. It's very easy to see the problems. We are hardwired biologically to see problems in our environment. It is not as easy to see solutions. It takes a muscle to build. And in order to build that muscle, you need to have faith that there are solutions to find. And there are, I feel as though we've got the solution to every problem on earth is, is available right now. It's just a matter of willingness and implementation and distribution. So let's, let's just go forward with faith that we can figure this, this thing out would be my final words of encouragement and inspiration. Mm, wonderful. Well, it's been a pleasure um, having you here today. Uh, I definitely am super appreciative of your presence in my life in regards to my own healing and uh, just your friendship. And you are a person who operates from the heart. And I've seen that um, in all of the people that you've helped and even, you know, helping certain things in my life as well. So it's, uh, I definitely have great gratitude and appreciation for you, Trevor. And it's so great to see all of the amazing things that you are doing and continue to do in this world. This world needs you. So Mm. just keep doing what you're doing. And thank you so much for being here. Uh, so much great information was shared in this episode that people need to hear. Yeah. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Shannon. And and ditto. It's, it's an honor to have you in my life. And I look forward to our continued journey together. Absolutely. Right. Take care. 
So that was Trevor Miller. We had a chance to talk with Trevor today from Vancouver on many topics. Specifically, we started with psychedelics and the use of Ibogaine for the treatment of depression as well as addiction. We also went on to talk about the stigma of psychedelics, the war on drugs, and why decriminalization is so important. He says, let's at least make the plants legal. The mushrooms are incredibly safe. Let's just set the plants free. He then goes on to talk about the CPA, the Canadian Psychedelic Association, which was formed in Canada last year and of course its importance. He also talks about how diversity and inclusion are very important topics within the psychedelic community and how important they both are to him. We also get to hear about Trevor's daily meditation practice and how psychedelics have given him the experiential reality that he was seeking in his spiritual practices. He talks about his chance meeting with Sadhguru and how his practices have helped his spiritual development. We also get to hear what dialing in means to Trevor and the importance of good friends, good community, as well as continual learning. He leaves us with saying, what we can do is tap into that source energy. It's an energy that gives us peace, a sense of belonging, and a sense of feeling at home. This is Shannon Lynn with Dialed In. Lead me from the untruth to the truth, from the darkness to the light, from mortality to immortality. Aum. Shanti, shanti, shanti. Thank you for joining us on the Dialed In Podcast. This is your host, Shannon Lynn. Namaste.